Greetings, and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kev. How are you? Well, I'm doing great. I don't have a quippy intro this week. Uh, I am too sad about the story. In a good way. It's a very fun, uh, melancholic story. Well, absolutely. We're definitely dealing with a very melancholic story this week. And it means that we, for only the second time, are dipping into the lost stories. And that means we're going to be covering the first Doctor's story, Farewell Great Macedon. So, um, Kev, would you care to give us our summary? Sure. The Doctor, Ian, Barbara, and Susan all land in ancient Babylon, where they meet Alexander the Great. As they get to know Alexander and become close friends, unbeknownst to them, Alexander's advisor, Antipoda, is seeking to put a different person on the throne by killing Alexander and all his named successors. As the successors die one by one, the doctor and his company fall under further suspicion, but eventually they're able to uncover the plot, but not before Alexander has been fatally poisoned. As Alexander dies, they bid farewell to Macedon, the titular farewell to Great Macedon. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And it's always a, it's always a challenge to do a, a, an introduction to this kind of story i suppose because we are really we're going into a like a full-blooded six-part william hartnell historical and that is not uh not something which lends itself naturally at this point to uh big finish which i don't mean as a, a criticism in fact quite quite the reverse um, but we're definitely sort of stepping out of familiar territory here We've covered the second story in this box set, which was the Fragile Yellow Arc of Fragrance, but it was a relatively short two-parter, and it was sort of comparatively easy to deal with. This is a sprawling six-parter, and the parts are longer than even sort of normal uh, TV episodes. We're getting up to sort of 30 to 40-minute episodes per episode. So this is a huge running time. Um, how do you think the play used its running time? Do you think it was able to kind of really fill all six episodes, and, and how did you find this one? I think it's very period accurate in how it fills six episodes. Uh, <laughs> there is a little bit of sort of back and forth, and uh, it's definitely not one of the slower ones, though, from the era. I will say it's it's not a complete run around, capture, escape, capture sort of structure. I think it this sort of idea of each advisor falling one by one does give it a sort of s- proper like pace and structure to the story, and. Then you have this sort of rising tension of it getting more and more perilous for the, our TARDIS crew as the story goes on. And so, yeah, I think the more relaxed, it is a very relaxed pace, and there's a lot of description heavy in the story, but I think it works to its advantage in really sort of settling into you the setting and these characters. So, yeah, I, I mean, it is very slow, and it was hard to get through all three hours of it, but I don't know, I I'd almost compare it to sort of uh, The Irishman, which recently dropped on Netflix. It's like this very, it's like slowness is part of the package. Hard to digest, but still a very full meal. Oh, no, it definitely is. And I think you're, you're quite right when you say that this does definitely recapture the, the feel of the Hartnell historicals. And it would be interesting to know exactly why this sort of never went into production. I think um, there's sort of a few suggestions or rumors or whatever you wanted it seems to have been rejected multiple times along the lines of its uh production and it just somehow it never just quite managed to 
to happen. I don't think that there was any big, or at least not that I've been able to see, I don't think there was any big sort of scandal or any sort of big, oh my God, we can't do that kind of moment for the whole thing. You know, it just, somehow it just never quite clicked together. Um, there may be a couple of reasons for that. And we'll, I'm sure we'll get into those as we sort of go through sort of discussing the story itself. But uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel in the way that it's presented any different from you know the big sort of sprawling historic uh, historical stories that Hartnell had so I'm thinking particularly of, of something like Marco Polo which is you know again a long long story pure historical where we actually you know take the time to explore a little bit about the culture and the people who are you know involved in in, in the story it's not just you so, you know local color or a bit of you know exotic setting or whatever which you know sometimes the 60s were guilty of that i think that's probably fair to say um uh, but here we do actually get to explore something of the of the society that we we find ourselves in and um that's definitely the bonus of having you know six episodes like this you, we have time to be able to do all that yeah and another bonus is uh, this sort of central guest character of alexander the great gets so much like development and is so well characterized. I think that's something the Hartnell era did very well, almost in contrast for the modern era, is really characterizing these historical figures they would come across. And I granted they have the luxury of having generally twice the running time. So it's not like Charles Dickens with his one hour in his episode is going to get the same characterization as say Marco Polo in his seven half hours. But, I mean, still, that's definitely an advantage, is you get more complex characterizations out of these historical figures. Well, yeah, absolutely. And when we're going to take time uh, to deal with a character like Alexander the Great, I think it is important to do that. At least in part because, I think, like you mentioned Charles Dickens, and I think people are, are much more likely to be familiar with somebody like Dickens, or Christie, or kind of the usual suspects from the the new show than they are about Alexander the Great. Maybe people have brushed up against uh, Alexander in, in sort of history classes from however many years ago, depending on how ancient and decrepit you are. But it's not something which is sort of in like a day-to-day -day part of, of uh, culture. Whereas something like Dickens, well, you can name drop Dickens at any point and, and almost everybody does. Well, that's fine. You know, we did it um, last week when we were talking about, um, uh, you know, Christmas Carol. That's, that's all fine. But Alexander the Great is a, you know, it's a well-known name, of course. It's instantly recognisable. But how much kind of general knowledge could be expected of the audience, I think, is, is substantially less. And so being able to see the way that Alexander works, particularly, you know, the way that he's able to look at justice from a different perspective than, than our regular characters, or the way that he views treachery differently from our, our regular characters... You know, it helps to ground the character in, in the time that he's from. It, it resists the temptation to, you know, modernise or update the character. And obviously, as far as this script is concerned, that would mean modernising it up to the 1960s rather than, you know, the 2010s when we're recording this. But that temptation is resisted. And, and um, I think that's really important because it, it does mean that we get to really explore Alexander the Great as an individual, as a person, rather than just here comes the celebrity, here comes the celebrity historical. Yeah, and that exploration is so fruitful. He's so interesting in this story, and like he's not entirely like a good person. He has moods. He is quick to anger, and it almost makes his friendship though with the Doctor and his companions feel so much more real. The fact that he's not just this perfect saint who's just, like, 
and they're fawning over him and he's fawning over them, it feels like it's a friendship hard won and it goes through like these trials and moments of like doubt and then it feels like it's a very strong ending and that makes his I mean death at the end, his historical death hurt all the more. Well, yeah, and it's if we're going to spend time with the character and care about what happens to him at the end of the story, it's vital that we, you know, we have enough of a flavour of him that we understand him from the time that he's in. But he has to be somebody that we can feel sympathetic towards. And one of the big sort of thrusts of the sort of latter half of the story is historic inevitability. And particularly that kind of last episode, which is dealing with Alexander's death, we have a lot of discussion around whether it's possible, again, to change history. Um, and it's important that this isn't just a retread of what goes on in the Aztecs, and I think it, it could very easily be that. Now, uh, this is where we have to sort of slightly blow the lines, because whether that speech was originally uh, part of uh, Morris Farhi's, you know, yeah, original script, or whether that's something which has maybe been adjusted by uh, Nigel Robinson, who does the adaptation here, we can't know, um, but it is important. It, it obviously it is covering a, a subject which the show has touched on before, and I think in a little bit more kind of detail, or at least in a, a slightly different way, the way that Susan says that, you know, history has ways of overcoming people who try and change it. And it's very peculiar, I, I think, to see the Hartnell Doctor trying to be quite so involved in changing history. But the important thing is, is that there's a discussion around it um, which helps expand lightly, not heavy-handedly, on something that the show had, had previously covered. It definitely feels a little backwards to have Hartnell's doctor like try to be very emotional at Alexander's death and try to wonder about changing it, and have Barbara be the one very hard line, we can't change history, given the Aztecs, where those positions were reversed. But, um... Yeah, I, I think it's still, like, worth exploring, and it's still a theme that's, like, very interesting. And it, it has the same advantages that the Aztecs has, where it's just this very weighty moral question. What could you do if you're in a historical period and you could try to change something? And I like that it comes to this ending. I mean, obviously, it's not going to radically change history. That's not the Doctor Who we know. <laughs> they try to keep history relatively close to how we experience it, in the real world, but at the same time, yeah, it's it does sort of raise those questions in a very interesting way, and I really think that it, it, it gives a sort of sense of tragedy to the story, especially. Like, when Barbara finds out what the year it is, and then she has this very quiet moment, you sort of know there's sort of no getting out of it, even though characters might protest. Well, absolutely, and this simply isn't a, a phase of the show which is heavily invested in the idea of, of discussing, you know, time travel and paradoxes and, and, you know, obviously we're half a century away from fixed points in time or anything like that. So, yeah, th I mean, we get a flavour of it through, you know, how we might have experienced it in, in say, 1963 or 1964, um, but the story doesn't feel the need to become bogged down in it, and that, that feels like the right decision to make. Uh, like I say, it feels a little bit weird having the Doctor you know, conspicuously try and change history, uh, especially this Doctor, Mr. Not One Line, you know, that it, it is odd that it's maybe quite, you know, pushing it in that way. And, and 
having that doctor introduce uh, certain things like the iron lung or, or, or blood transfusions. I mean, you know, if they if they take if 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 something, you know, I mean that's that's definitely something that could materially alter history. And okay, fine, we know that that's not something that happens, but it's it's uh it's one of the slight questions. I, I overall I think it's very clear. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this story, but I do have a couple of sort of questions or a couple of points at least which I, I think need to be addressed, and that's one of them. And it is odd, giving that kind of such a, a proactive kind of interfering with history to to this doctor yeah i also think of the scene where barbara ian and doc the doctor give alexander like a plastic bracelet a watch and a compass and in many other (laughs) sci-fi stories that'd be like and that's how the babylons ruled the world with lasers (laughs) it's i mean and obviously that is extreme but um yeah uh it is sort of interesting how reverential of history stories while also being sort of flippant with it a little bit as well and just i think it's a good mix though because it those gifts feel so right in the moment it's just a lovely moment i wouldn't want to have the story without them no it's a it's a a very well handled scene um but yeah that's yeah absolutely it would be that would be the the moment where and now we live in a world where the roman empire never fell and and thankfully we're we're spared that kind of stuff here but it's a is it's a very sweet scene but yeah, and oh, right at the beginning as well, right in the first episode, we get that really peculiar discussion about whether they've died and gone to heaven. And that just, that feels really weird. There's something very off about that that kind of discussion. I, I have no idea where that came from or, or why it sort of belongs, either in the original draft or kind of the, the revised version that we have here. But that was, that seemed very odd to me. Yeah, though that does feel, it's so weird, but it does feel almost like early first season, second season of Doctor Who in a way, where it's just, we don't have a good grasp on the tone of this show, of these characters, a little mysticism to it. I'm thinking of things, I mean, it feels in line with that sort of tonal confusion of early Doctor Who, very, very early Doctor Who, before it became like so sort of locked in just later on in the first Doctor era even where you would have these sort of scenes of, like, weirdness and, like, the characters being sort of unsure of things like how the TARDIS worked and things like that. It was... So, yeah, it is a weird start to the story. It has no relation to anything else, which is why it's so bizarre. But it almost... I'm sort of glad it sort of is left unaltered, unedited. Yes, I suppose it makes it a more kind of authentic thing. It's just very peculiar. The, the, the most sort of doctorish or Doctor Whoish thing in it is um, the Doctor sort of quietly chastising uh, Susan by saying that well, they can't possibly be in heaven because he doesn't know the way there, and that's that feels very authentic to Hartnell's Doctor. So um, yeah, that kind of works. Um, I kind of it was funny when I when I was listening to it. I was going to think, oh well, this is going to be a peculiar framing device, and that, that it's just never ever mentioned again. So. Um, yeah, but a bit weird, but okay, fine. That's, you know, the whole thing about lost stories is that they're not necessarily going to fit into our expectations of, of what to expect, even when they are sort of recreating an era like this. And, and that's just definitely one example of it. I think since we're talking about being a lost story, we should talk about the main like, sort of formal element of it, which is how we only have three actors. 
which I think might be the biggest weakness of the story. On one hand, William Russell, uh, Carolyn Ford, and John Dorney as Alexander are all giving fantastic performances. I, oh, yeah, yeah. They're all incredible. Unfortunately, this story has like 20-something characters in it. It is just a massive, massive story. And William Russell has to pull so much heavy lifting voicing all of the male characters, of which there are a dozen, it feels like. And, yeah, I just could have used the variety, I think, would have made it stand out more. And also, especially relying, relying high, highly on descriptions and the, like descriptive speech for like scenes where the conspirators are meeting and none of the three voiced characters are there. Or things like that. And so it's a lot of blank said blank and blank said this. I think it definitely drags the story down, sort of pacing and imagination-wise a little bit. Yeah, it definitely does. And it, that's not an insult to um, either Caroline Ford or, or William Russell, both of whom I think are just outstanding here. But yeah, there's a lot of characters here. And especially, I think, when you're dealing with a, a historical setting like this, you're dealing with characters who have, you know, names that you're not necessarily all that familiar with. Um, you know, a lot of sort of comparatively complicated uh, names if, if you're not sort of steeped in, in, in sort of, you know, classical mythology or classical history. And it does, yeah, it does, it does make it difficult an occasion to, to sort of follow what's going on. And I guess this story does occupy that weird sort of central point where we've moved into the idea that we can revisit eras of the show where, you know, a, a proportion of, of the cast are dead. And so they cannot directly recreate it in the way that they do, say, in the main range. But at the same time, they want to start exploring it without doing um, a full recast. And it's very easy to imagine, you know, if this story was being made now, well, now we have a fully recast First Doctor, Ian, Susan and Barbara, uh, you know, cast uh, doing the, the, the early adventures. So that's fine. Now this would be no problem at all. And it probably would be a full cast adventure now. But, but back then that simply wasn't, wasn't the case. And so that means we get William Russell pulling out his, his best William Hartnell. And I think he does a very, very good William Hartnell. Oh, I think for sure. he's genuinely, genuinely excellent. Really capturing the spirit of the character he's of course he's got the hmms and yes my dears and all the, the sort of familiar you know vocal ticks that hartnell had but i think he's able to bring the essence of the character without it just being a straight up inter uh, impression even although there are aspects of impressions there as well if that kind of makes sense but he he finds a way of bringing that character to life with sort of respect and, and dignity and without it just being like, yeah, like a straight up impression. And I think that's a, a real, you know, that's a real skill. And, and uh, Ian Russell, I'm sorry, yeah. Ian and Barbara, uh, you know, are both, you know, obviously recreated as well. And, and with uh, Caroline Ford doing Barbara and of course, uh, William Russell doing Ian. And, that interaction comes together very well as well. And again, that's just testament to our, to our two lead actors here who are, who are simply fantastic. But recapturing Hartnell, which is the core of this, you know, this era, this, this, this period of the show, is it's so crucial that uh, William Russell is able to do that. And he, he does. Um, and so even if that was the only good thing about the story, and it is absolutely not the only good thing about the story, but even if it was, that alone would make this story worth listening to. Oh, for sure. And 
Yeah, I really think that you don't even have to do the full recasting. Something like the more recent early adventures, which full disclosure I haven't listened to, but from what I understand, uh, they have one actor reprising the Doctor and everything else is fully cast. And that might have been the way to go with this, because like I said, uh, Wayne Russell is such a good first Doctor and Caroline Ford is such a good Barbara. And so you can have those two cover those two characters. But then having a wider cast to draw through for these guest characters would have definitely gotten some more variety in here. And again, like I said, Russell Ford did a good job with the other characters as well. It's a fine, like even more than just fine, like a very good job characterizing them and acting and performing them. It's just a lack of variety and the heavy reliance on narration that really sort of slows this down. And like sometimes the narration I think is like very poetic and nice, but I think most of the time it is, it's making this story which would have been six 25-minute episodes, like linear on a TV, stretched to 40 minutes every time. And that is a little bit of a drag. Well, it is. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think this is actually longer than Zagreus. It doesn't feel longer than Zagreus because nothing in the entire history of the universe feels longer than Zagreus. But it is a very long story. And I think um, I think part of the problem is, is that um, episode one, I think, does drag. I think it's the only one of the five, oh, sorry, the only one of the six that does drag. Um, and it's because about half the episode is basically just the politics of the situation yeah. sort of being delivered kind of, um, you know, in, in sort of hushed whispers around a conspiratorial table. Um, and, and Russell is doing all of the voices. And a, it's a bunch of characters that obviously we can't see, um, that we don't have any familiarity with. You have you know, at least initially, names that we're not familiar with, which are maybe, you know, delivered slightly cumbersomely. Um, and that, you know, that construes a good sort of 15 minutes of the episode. It's, uh, well, he did this, and then they did that, and that's what happened then, and now we're going to do it like this. And there's a lot of, it's just really kind of heavy sort of political exposition. And uh, and that episode's really drags its heels. Once the story actually gets started, which is around maybe five minutes from the end of the first episode. Then we're off and running. And it's not, of course, it's not a fast-paced episode because there's a heart no historical. But then the story kind of kicks into gear and, and we become much more kind of swept along. But yeah, that first episode, it, it needs another couple of voices. It needs another couple of actors in there to kind of try and make that scene come alive. And I'm not blaming William Russell for not being able to do it. I don't, I'm probably not an actor on earth that could have done that. But it's the place where I think the limitations of this incredibly small cast kind of are are most obvious. Yeah, I'd agree as well. Um, I think the story definitely picks up a lot once you get past that scene, but that scene is so long. Like that, and also like just a very... I, don't, I do like the parts of the Doctor and his companions exploring Babylon before they meet anyone, but that also you could argue that is also why that first episode drags a bit as well. I think it's... But yeah, once it gets going, I think its story is very well paced. Um, I think it does a good job characterizing, like it's this huge cast. I wish there was like a variety of actors that characterize them better. But like even characters like Clytus, who are only around for the first two episodes, definitely leave an impact. I think that's a very important thing. Oh, it is, and um, the way that the story is able to engage with those kind of characters. Um, it's, it's absolutely kind of one of its strengths. Like, Clytus is... It's necessary for him to make an impact in the first two episodes before 
um, you know, before he's murdered. Um, because he's going to be part of the story going forward. You know, he's going to be one of the, the reasons that um, the strangers, the travellers get, you know, accused of murder and one of the reasons that they're vulnerable to that is the is the three deaths you know that are, that are laid out throughout the story um and so for Clytus's death to carry any weight to it for it to have any meaning we need to spend enough time with the character that we actually know him we don't need to like him but we need to know him and and understand uh the depth of the relationship between him and alexander and that's true for the other two deaths as well once we have that established fine then then you know it, it makes sense for the whole trial thing which takes up the back two episodes of the of the six parter and uh, yeah then it all just flows but yeah something like clytus's murder has to have that impact um and and the way the script is able to kind of wrestle um individuality from all these characters is is uh, a triumph of the writing i mean yes yeah, sure sometimes characters do get a bit lost as we've discussed I don't think there's really anything that could be done about that, but there's still enough vividness to the characters that they will stand out. They have enough detail. They have their own political agendas. They have their own sort of backstories without it just all being kind of info dumpy. And then he did this. Well, apart from that, that first episode he bit, um, and that's that's just really important. And yeah, it 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 definitely shows off the strength of the writing here. Yeah, uh, I think one of my favorite sequences is sort of the drama surrounding Colanus, who is like this character who really only shines in that one episode, I believe the third one and into the fourth, where he is poisoned and the doctor tries everything he can to save him, but instead he has this decision of instead of suffering, I'd rather die. And it's, I mean, it's not what I would morally agree with, but it, the fact <laughs> that the questions are being raised, it does make it very like dramatic. And you have this very sad, tragic scene where the doctor probably could have saved him. He has technology, but he is sort of helpless because otherwise it, he'd be going against these wishes and it would also be like a sort of violation of time. And so there is this sort of weird needle that can't quite be threaded. It is, it is just a very profoundly sad moment. Yeah, it's a, it's a really brilliant scene. It's a very sort of touching moment. Um, and the sort of the nobility of the character really sort of comes through. And it's really strange, I suppose, to talk about somebody, you know, choosing death over life when it's not necessarily a choice that they're obligated to make. It's, it's weird to describe that as sort of, you know, his honour, his pride, his, you know, the strength of the character. But that's absolutely what it is. And of course, it parallels exactly what happens with Alexander at the end of the film as well. At the end of the film. <laughs> That says something. I'm already visualizing it. Um, that is, you know, that's the parallel with Alexander at the end of the audio story, JG. Um, you know, where he makes the same choice. He could conceivably carry on living, but he opts not to because he realizes that his dream, the only thing that's been kept, you know, that's kept him going 
is not something which will ever be fulfilled and he can't stand the idea of shedding more blood in pursuit of a, a dream which can never be achieved. So he too chooses to end his own life when conceivably he could be saved. It's a really neat little piece of um, symmetry between the two characters and it's not overemphasized either. It's just sort of allowed to stand there um, and you know it's, it's up for the, the, the listeners to be able to sort of pick up in the parallel between the two characters choosing their fate in the same way. Um, but it's also one of those little details that really helps to um, draw in how society and how characters who genuinely do have some kind of nobility to them, how they would function in this time. And, and by both choosing the same fate and in the same manner, we get to understand why these two characters were so close, why they meant to, uh, so much to each other. And of course, it stands in absolute contradiction to all of the conspirators that we have here who will do nothing uh, you know, in a forthright, honourable or noble fashion, who can only skulk in bushes, who can only poison with, you know, uh, you know, roses covered in, 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 in venom or whatever it is, or, or asps, and that's the, that's the only way that they know how to function. Um, yes, and when we get those two things, well, the parallels couldn't be clearer. We talked a lot about Alexander the Great, and we talked a lot about the performances, but I don't think we ever talked about Alexander the Great's performance. I love John Dorney in this. Like, he captures all those emotions you were just describing so well. And, like, he does... The character has to have so much range. He has to be this big, happy, gregarious person with a very louder-than-life personality, but he also has to nail these very much quieter, sadder, angrier moments. And John Dorney, who we mostly know as a writer for Big Finish, he gives a fantastic performance here. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, no, he's brilliant as, uh, as, as Alexander. And I, I don't believe... I'm sure somebody can write in and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I don't believe that we've ever covered a story where John Dorney has acted before unless you can think of one I can't I can't really I can recall look it but, up. yeah but but other than that you know like this is if if we have covered him before there hasn't been enough yeah. that's really stuck in in the mind but here he is just fantastic you know he really is able to bring this character to life and I think it's a very it would be very easy to Brian Blessed this performance, if you know what I mean. You could really, like, bellow it up and, 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 and go over the top. And, and I don't really mean that as an insult to Brian Blessed, because I, I know he's a fantastic actor, given the given the chance. Um, but John Dorney is just so good at being able to inhabit this character. And it is really one where, you know, he has to draw on, on sort of the full range of, of human emotions. He's, he goes from happiness and joy to depression to melancholy to, to, you know, choosing his own death. And, you know, there's just like every possible emotion that John Dorney has to portray here. You know, it, he has to get every single thing right. Otherwise, this character just isn't going to work. And he's great at it. He's just, he's just fantastic. It's one of the best performances I think that we've covered in a very very long time oh, I completely agree uh, just to sort of fast check a little bit we have covered his performance in detail when he was also in the Fragile Arc of Fragrance on the same box oh, okay. he was Rhythm and then also prominently in the light at the end as Bob Dovey which I can't remember what notes we had about that it was such a stuffed story <laughs> I, I, I don't I recall that good. performance standing out among the 17,428 other performances we had yeah. in that story <laughs> Yeah, besides that, yeah, it's mostly minor stuff, minor stuff and a few main range stories, a few fourth doctor stories. 
Yeah, it looks like he'd only got his foot in the door through uh, acting for Big Finish and then would eventually become a writer. But yeah, he is so strong as an actor. He, yeah, it's just a fantastic performance here. It really is sort of the peak of his, like, uh, ability. And it's, yeah, it's just wonderful to hear him go through all those emotions and to really form a strong connection. I mean, you really buy it by episode six, how he's sort of fallen in love with these people, these strangers as they keep being called. And it makes that connection all the more sad when it has to end. I think also the way that he's able to shift from being genuinely suspicious of the, the doctor and, and the, the, the crew uh, in terms of their their guilt, the whole thing that leads to the their their big trial by combat and the doctor's firewalking. Yeah, he's able to move, um, you know, from that guilt to to sort of coming to believe their their innocence very convincingly. And again, that could be a bit contrived because I think the cliffhanger to episode four is them being accused of the murder, and then. Episode 5 and 6 is basically them exonerating themselves. And in line with almost all of the cliffhangers here, and almost all of the Hartnell historical cliffhangers, it's not a very good cliffhanger. If the, oh, we're just about to leave, we're just about to leave, but wait, there's still two episodes left of this story to go, so quick, uh, accuse them of something. Uh, okay, that'll, that'll spin out for another couple of episodes. It's a really kind of lame cliffhanger. And oh, for it, sure. it, it, it struggles to kind of overcome that. But... The actual journey that Alexander goes on in those last two episodes where he has to go from being convinced of their their guilt to, to thoroughly, you know, convinced of their innocence. It's so important that we believe that journey and that it doesn't seem contrived. And the way that the script writes it isn't... It's not 100% sure-footed. I think the whole trial by combat scene and all that kind of stuff, that, that's all fine. Um... But they have the trial scene. The doctor is brought forward and uh, with the rest of the, the, the crew and, and, you know, they're accused of it. And they have these, the doctor struggles to justify their innocence. And we get, like, nice moments where he says, no, sir, you know, it's, it's innocent until proven guilty and all that kind of stuff. And that's, that's nice. But they don't actually produce any convincing evidence at all. And so then they're accused of being guilty. And then within about two minutes, the doctor has gone, ah, but wait, I figured it out. I know I, I know how I can prove her innocence now. It's really clunky. Um, but it leads to the whole, um, the whole um, Ian doing some wrestling and, and the doctor doing his firewalking and all the rest of it. So it, it gets over that, but it's not, it's not a completely elegant way of doing it. But John Dorney's performance during that transition is fantastic and we have to believe that alexander is capable of taking that kind of emotional journey and because of the strength of his performance we absolutely do for sure yeah i do like the doctor firewalking i think it's a very clever moment that's a very first doctor e moment it gets that sort of almost educational but definitely like sort of based in science sort of feel that that first doctor era would have at some points uh, and, and even in the wrestling, I guess it also sort of qualifies. So that is harder to sort of love because it's such a cinematic thing and we're just hearing about it. But yeah, uh, yeah you're, it leads to good things, even if it's so clunky to get us to that arena battle. It's a very first Doctor to sort of do a very clunky transition because, oh, it's time for some action in an episode. Yes, no, I think that's, I, I think that's true. And um, 
I don't know whether this is just like sort of modern expectations taking over, but when Ian decides that he's going to do the wrestling as his kind of trial by combat, I was kind of waiting for there to be a follow up on it. Like he when 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 he's offered the like uh, running and archery and um and javelin or whatever it is and and wrestling, and he immediately says no. I'm going to take wrestling and you know Alexander tries to talk him out of it and and the, the you know Ian and uh, sorry uh, Susan and, and Barbara aren't sure if it's the right thing for him to do but he's really insistent on it that's what he's going to do he's going to do the wrestling and it turns out he's great at it for whatever reason but I kind of I was what I was waiting for an explanation I was waiting for him to say ah because I, I was in the army and I used to re- wrestle when he you know like the character almost certainly would have done national service in the 1950s so i was waiting for there to be something like oh yeah it's because uh, i i did my national service and I, I i wrestled in the army or i had experience of it at, at you know the school i went to or just like some kind of explanation because they put such a a heavy emphasis on the fact that this is what he's going to do he's going to wrestle well okay um but the explanation never came and like you're saying this is a very um, sort of uh, cinematic or, uh, you know, visual thing that they're trying to do with, uh, you know, the wrestling scenes taking place. In a way, I actually think we may be lucky that we got that in an audio story because Hartnell era was sort of notoriously bad at fight scenes. There, I don't think there's a convincing fight scene in the entirety of the Hartnell era. I, I love, we've discussed many times, I love the Hartnell historicals. I love the Hartnell era very, very much. Um, but I think the fact that this is an audio story has basically just spared us the sight of three or four slightly tubby actors slapping each other about in a soundstage at Lime Grove. And I'm okay with not having to see that again. So now I'm wondering, because I... In my mind, I, like, went, oh, Ian's going to win the wrestling because he can, like, use physics to win the wrestling. And I realized you're right. I don't think that's ever actually explained. I just assumed that. And then, oh, this, that was the explanation. And then, But, yeah, I don't think it's actually explained in the story itself, which is uh, yeah, well, a big oversight. I think Alexander gets one line about how this is a scientist fight. Uh, or uh, this yes, is how a scientist... It. But that's it. And that's... I don't think that's enough, really. No, no, not enough at all. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, it's it's just one of those things. It's, uh, you know, the Hartnell era was not necessarily always perfect at capping off every single, you know, every single point or every single line. And I, I think some of that might just be slightly sort of modern ex, uh, expectations on it. One thing I think this play does extremely well, which we also haven't talked about, is it's very good at doing kind of gleeful not quite pantomime bad guys they're not quite pantomime villains um but i think you know particularly antipatus and uh Celestius are really good kind of uh, adversaries for both alexander and for the doctor and co and particularly for the doctor and co he's never they sorry i should say they've never quite directly enemies of each other only enemies because the doctor is aligned with alexander rather than because there's any deliberate or or specific conflict between the doctor and those characters it's it's sort of guilt by association if you like that doesn't in any way prevent um you know any of the bad guys in the story trying to sort of 
take uh, the Doctor Ian, Barbara and Susan out of the picture or whatever. But in in those two um, in those two characters, we have you know some really gleeful villainy going on, which again feels very you know of the era. It's the same kind of performance, the same kind of characters that we definitely got in the Aztecs. There's a lot of relish in the way that they enjoy their their kind of evil plans and whether you know they're not i don't think they're the brightest conspirators that would necessarily come across in the entire annals of doctor who but you know that's fine you know again it's it's a 60s script i'm i'm, I'm not expecting vast layers of, of complexity when it when it comes to that form of characterization but they're really really good as as adversaries and sort of almost it's not unique but it's very unusual in in that they basically get almost everything they want they never quite manage to get thrown which of course is ultimately the the aim of the game but they are able to eliminate character after character right up to and including alexander himself and they are mostly effective at what they're trying to do there is a slight sense of um and they would have got away with it if it hadn't been for those pesky tardis crews and you know that's that's fine that works again within the sort of context of the of the era but there is a, i think a a real sense that they are sort of you know genuinely good adversaries they they actually do almost get away with exactly what it is they want to do oh yeah it's definitely and it almost feels like in spite of their ability that they get away with it because like the first two killings like are so obvious to the doctor at least what has gone on and then the third one, it just is just a complete fiasco in terms of like how much evidence they wind up leaving behind. <laughs> but yeah, it's I think it's just sort of goes to show it doesn't. It's almost like how sort of life is unfair in a very and this can't possibly be like a deliberate homage, like almost like a Coen Brothers sort of way where it's like even stupid people can still succeed at causing misfortune and harm to other people, and. Yeah, it is, and there's that sort of tragedy at the end to it where, yeah, it's very much sort of a, appropriately enough, pyrrhic victory where you have uh, the bad guys are exposed and thwarted and they won't get what they want, but they still sort of succeeded in what they were trying to do in terms of killing people. And so no one has really wins. No one comes out feeling good about anything. And that's such a, like, a bold thing to do, I think, just to have a story that is unambiguously a downer at the end. Oh, you know, I com- I completely agree. And that kind of, that, that melancholy, that sort of downer ending is really layered throughout the whole script. So although we have, you know, a lot of poetic language, clearly we have the, you know, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. So we have, a, you know, a beautiful setting, admittedly, in audio, not something that we can see. But, you know, we have all this, you know, beauty around us, the idea that Ale- uh, Alexander is trying to, you know, bring peace to the world. All this kind of stuff, and yet that sense of uh, melancholy is layered all the way throughout the script. You know, there's that line about, um, you know, how blood and roses are the same, what is it, they're the same color because they have such short lives, I think is the line. Um, and all that kind of stuff, it, it's, it's very foreboding without being sort of too heavy handed, and that, that sort of melancholy that's layered throughout all six episodes is important for us. I think as the audience, because if we're going to buy that downer ending, 
it needs to not just be something that turns on a hairpin. We need it needs to be something that's built to, and for every victory that the the TARDIS crew are able to sort of achieve, for every way that they're able to kind of, you know, thwart a plan or or or, or prove themselves innocent or whatever it is, they can't escape the weight of history, and they can't escape what Barbara suddenly realizes really is going to be a you know the ultimate downer ending because Alexander is going to die that day and and for all the the fussings of the doctor and the the iron lung and all that kind of stuff it's unavoidable and yeah i agree with you i think it is a brave way to end it it's not uh necessarily the most obvious way of ending a story like this um but it feels very genuine and that genuineness is what really makes it work yeah it is so genuine, and it also just gets into this big theme of the story, which is sort of this inevitability of history. These tragic things will happen, and sometimes you just can't prevent them. You just have to sort of accept them, no matter how happy they made you along the way, and it's sort of better for the memories, even if they have to come to an end eventually. I think that's such like a smart sort of layering. I mean, it ties into Yellow Arc of Fragrance, which I don't think we ever shouted this out specifically, but both are written by Morris Fari. And I think he has this great understanding of this sort of like impermanence of life and this sort of try having to accept these sort of tragic things in both of his sort of ab- like aborted scripts. And it's a shame not to make the television because I think it would have been very bold, very different, and very uh, entertaining episodes of Doctor Who. Yeah, I, I, there's nothing there I, I disagree with at all. I, I do remember one of the things when we were discussing uh, Yellow Ark of Fragrance is that we were sort of immediately impressed, or so not impressed, that's not the right word. It, it, it was immediate proof of why having people from diverse writing backgrounds pays such dividends because the Fragile Yellow Ark of Fragrance is such a... It's a really poetic story. I don't know how they could ever have managed to produce that on TV, but purely as an audio story, it's incredibly kind of poetic and captivating and and, and unusual and different in all the ways that makes Doctor Who interesting. And like for the Lost Stories, like both of these stories, which of course are in the same box set, are just fantastic and, and so you know, worth bringing to life. Now, that will not be true for all of the lost stories that get brought to life. Um, But here it absolutely is true. And having somebody who's coming from that different background, who's writing from a different perspective, just immediately makes the material that we're presented with that much more interesting because it's not just more of the same. It's not the usual collection of, you know, sort of bland middle-class white guys trying to write stuff or whatever. And whilst this story is far, far more uh, traditional than the Fragile Yellow Arc of Fragrance, you still have that real flavour of somebody who's writing, maybe with more knowledge, maybe with more experience, who's not just giving us the, the like the Cliff Notes version of history. There's more detail there. Little little lines, yeah, like, like, like the Blood and Roses lines, or little just lush ways that, that, um, that things are described or... Or, or the, the, the turn of phrase and language that um, Alexander uses um, as opposed to the sort of the more functional dialogue that we have with the, the TARDIS crew. It just, it, it makes the whole thing come alive and it's doing it because it's not just, even though it's writing in a much more traditional mode than Fragile Yellow Arc, 
it's still coming from a different perspective and it just it it really does give that huge boost to the story and it's one of the things which makes it so incredibly engaging i think that is a fantastic note to wrap up our discussion on and yeah i'm really glad we covered the story it's it's such a great little gem that i'm very glad we finished as resurrected if you want to reach out to us on email or twitter email us at talking who to you at gmail.com or on twitter at talking who to you we love uh having questions about the stories we've covered, suggestions for future stories, other questions about topics related to Doctor Who or even not related to Doctor Who, please send them our way. You can also find me on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. You can find more of JG's writings at www.jgmcquarrie.scott. That is J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E dot Scott. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast you're using to help other people find it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, we can leave it there for the historical and for the Hartnell era form. Now, next week, we are going to be jumping ahead to Son of the Dragon. So that means we are going to be back with the Fifth Doctor. And of course, as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. <laughs>